I think we do think about values as being something that shouldn't change much over time. You might shift them, you might get better clarity. Sometimes you realize a value is not serving you well, and you might need a contrast or a complement to that value. But beliefs should be updating constantly. You know, I joke with my kids, there is never 100% certainty in anything. Everything is essentially a probability mass, and that probability mass gets informed by priors, it gets informed by emotional gut feels, it gets informed by a lot of different things, but you've got to just keep updating. That was Andy Falshaw. I'm Rich Bolas, and this is the Dad Mindset Show. This week, I talk with Bellroy CEO Andy Falshaw, and we discuss the importance of understanding and slowly honing your values, yet being ready to update your beliefs quickly in order to keep learning. Andy is a really deep thinker with a heart of gold. And if you'd like to find out more about him, I've put links in the show notes, which you can find at thedadmindset.com. I hope you really enjoy this chat with Andy Fulshaw. Andy Fulshaw, welcome to the show. Thank you, Rich. Good to be here. Oh, it's great to see you. So tell me, Andy, what would I need to know about you in your childhood that would help me understand the person you are today? <laughs> um, I, think I've, I think I've changed a lot through the years, but perhaps, perhaps the most informative thing might be to witness the Fulshaw dinner table. Um, so the Fulshaw dinner table was a round table, so everyone was equal, and it was often much more than our family. Um, there were four kids, two parents, but we often had foster kids. We often had friends there. And it was a, it was a challenging place. You, you would have your values, your actions, your beliefs challenged. You would have a, a, a sort of very active debate. You would have mum and dad questioning, you know, your purpose in life. You would have friends rocking up, you know, maybe they'd just got into law and dad would unleash, why the hell would you do that? <laughs> you know, or it, it, was a, it was a very challenging environment, but always coming from a place of love and a place of trying to get growth and get the most out of it. So I think, yeah, I think maybe witnessing the dinner table would have been almost the most informative sort of aspect to why perhaps I am the way I am. I love that sort of image. What would have been one of the manners, like one of the questions, the way it sounds like it would have been a, a compassionate way of questioning, but I imagine that, that could have felt like an edge as well. Like absolutely. You had to and be on your toes. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, just before we started recording, we were talking a little bit about some of our blind spots, right? Things that we've just never lent into and been really aware of and questioned. And I think the dinner table was a good way to sort of tease out if there's an area you haven't perhaps thought as much about as maybe you should. And so sometimes that was life goals and direction. Sometimes it was an action that they're aware, you know, I might've done at school that day or something. And it, it was a questioning way to check that, you understood the consequences of your actions and you were forming beliefs and values that would give you maps to navigate life with. 
Yeah, I love that idea. And it's almost like just verifying that the person's thinking it through. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and sometimes we hadn't. So yeah. <laughs> that, that's when the crash would happen and it's like, oh, God. Okay. But then they'd help you rebuild. Uncle Frank's okay. coming over. <laughs> oh, man. I, I've, got to, I've got to come up with a really rational idea. <laughs> I mean, because I, I just mentioned rationalism. Uh, you know, like you and your brother have gone on quite a journey with rationalism, haven't you? Yeah, so I, I'd say... My brother Matt lent into that quite early. He combined engineering and arts at university. He was in philosophy and history as well as engineering. And his partner, Lena, they met at university. So she sort of joined the family from quite an early age. And I think Matt was maybe the catalyst. But a lot of, you know, Lena, myself, and then the wider group that we hang out with, trying to think about... um, Applied rationality was one of the communities that Matt got involved with pretty early. But it was this idea of not the Dr. Spock version where everything is a calculation and everything can be brought back to a probability. But it was a way of trying to understand how do you get the best out of your emotions but not let them lead you blind into places. But then how do you reinforce that with hard thinking, with firm concrete beliefs how how do you actually assign a probability mass how do you look at theorems and biases and understand traps we might fall into and so i think um you know i'd very much say my brother matt was sort of the the holder of that energy that spread but then i think we've all tried to take that as a catalyst and see how we could shape it into our own lives yeah and i love the idea well actually watching you in the past update very quickly it's like as soon as there's a different piece of compelling evidence it's like oh great let's pivot here and off we go yeah absolutely and i think we do think about values as being something that shouldn't change much over time you might shift them you might get better clarity sometimes you realize a value is not serving you well and you might need a contrast or a complement to that value but Beliefs should be updating constantly. You know, I joke with my kids, there is never 100% certainty in anything. Everything is essentially a probability mass and that probability mass gets informed by priors, it gets informed by emotional gut feels, it gets informed by a lot of different things, but you've got to just keep updating. I don't think there is, you know, a divine truth. I don't think there is the one reality, you know, perceptions, everything, color it. But I think you can move closer to thoughts that serve you well and closer to beliefs that serve you well. And so I, I cringe every time our society rips apart a politician for changing their mind. It's like, what? If you're not changing your mind, that's the problem. So the values should be there. They should move slowly and slowly have more clarity but beliefs should be getting modified and moved and updated regularly otherwise you've stopped learning (laughs) yeah that's right you're stagnating and i mean the values thing is a great challenge how did you actually begin to take stock of your values and actually formalize their priority i think it happens in many ways i think one way is deliberate introspection projects right it's like really trying to go into yourself and think why am I doing that like I notice myself responding a certain way in a conversation or I notice myself prioritizing one thing over another 
can I actually sit down anytime I'm confused? Can I find some space and try and dig into, is there something deeper getting me to make that choice? Like, is there something deeper driving me to that? And so often when we hit frustration points or confusion, if you go deep enough, you can actually find that there appear to be two values that seem to be in conflict. And and then the job is to sort of say, well, is there a, a paradigm shift or something I can do where I can actually understand there is a way to navigate forward where I don't have to compromise this value for that value? There might actually be a way to sort of transcend that frustration or that compromise and actually find a way to mesh it. So part of it is these active kind of course correcting steps when you notice yourself a bit confused or disappointed by a behavior you've done. But then part of it too is really trying to understand the culture you've been brought up in. You know, the full shore dinner table is a great example. It's like, what was good about that? What was bad about that? What's the value driving that? Both my parents were religious. I, I'm not, but I've still inherited many of the values that had them find a religion as a compass to navigate with those values where myself, I've ended up realizing that those values didn't need that religion as a compass. But I, I find the way I live my life is still fairly similar to a lot of what my parents were trying to achieve while they were alive. And so some of it is really trying to understand your own culture, understand the cultures you're moving between, understand different cultures, trying to step back and say, well, the behaviours might be different. Can I go deeper and understand the values that are driving those behaviours? So some of it's sort of introspection. Some of it's trying to really actively break apart and then pull back together things you're seeing in the world and things that you know have influenced you. Some of it's trying to really understand friendships and the people you spend time with and and sort of drill down to try and build a bit of a map for them and understand their value base. And does that feel like a good value or a bad? Is that serving them and society well or is it hindering something? Is it a chance that the value's noble but the expression of that value is not right? So I, I think there's many ways. You know, you, you read the classics, you go from Stoicism to Buddhism to, you know, all these different philosophies. You try and tease out which values seem to transcend eras and generations you you kind of do some active searching and learning from history from other cultures and approaches some of it you try and understand your own behaviors I, I think it's a sort of broad avenues for ways I try and do that yeah I love the idea as well when you say you nudge up against the frustration and maybe it's an opportunity then to reframe it and actually look at it as like wow, this is actually a chance for me to discover something that might actually unlock a different way of thinking and feeling here. So instead of just getting all caught up and going a bit of a tailspin, maybe we can look at it and go, this is actually a great opportunity. Why am I so frustrated or why am I procrastinating on this thing? Absolutely, yes. And I think there's certain emotions that if you can associate them with a chance to then introspect, it's great. So if you have the emotion of disgust, I think that's a great emotion to pull apart because normally disgust is an emotion that's not actually serving you or anyone else well, but it's often a flag that there's something you haven't properly integrated in your psyche. Like, you know, um, I've watched my mother-in-law just so happily pick up dog poo, right? And it's like, that sounds like a small (laughs) thing, but she just doesn't have disgust around it. And it's like, 
that is such a healthy relationship, right? Like it's a natural part of how our systems work. If you let yourself stay with disgust around the notion of poo and excrement and all these things, it won't actually serve you well. So there's a chance to introspect and go and see it. Um, Anger and rage is another one, right? It's great to acknowledge them and see something's happening. But often there's something where you don't want the world to work that way. You know, there's some form of denial happening there. And actually, that's a great flag to then go back and say, is there something I haven't properly integrated in the way I'm thinking about my values, my beliefs, my actions, that's meaning I'm being really triggered by this. And that's actually a great chance to go back and look at it. So I think there's certainly emotions that form these things where if you can associate emotions like envy, that's an emotion that's not serving you. Instead, you can say, well, what have they had to compromise to achieve that thing that I'm feeling a bit of envy towards? Would I be willing to adopt their whole life, their whole way of being to achieve that one thing that I'm a little bit jealous of right now? Um, So there's a series of negative emotions that I don't think actually serve us well. But instead of denying them, it's like recognizing when something's just triggering you a little bit towards one of these negative emotions and realizing that might actually be a really good growth opportunity. Yeah, totally. (laughs) So many questions come from that. But I think envy, that's a classic one because we often just see the success on the surface, don't we? We don't see the myriad hours, weeks, months, years that have actually been applied consistently over time to actually compound someone's skill set or someone's situation. And we just see the end result. And it's that classic thing of it was an overnight success, but one hell of a long night. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and is that something you'd be comfortable putting up with all those years of struggle and toil in dark rooms without the fun drinks at the pub with friends, without the walks in nature, whatever? It's like you've got to see the whole package. Yeah. Now, taking a step back, Andy, you mentioned your parents, you had foster siblings, I guess, in the household. What was that like? It was challenging. Um, We were generally the way mum and dad worked with the social services were if a kid was really struggling to find a family or they were in a transition period or something there, then they're like, hey, we'll offer our house up, like we can take them. So they they were generally kids staying with us for a month or two, sometimes six months, sometimes longer while we were trying to find a new, more permanent home for them. And that did mean we had a lot of kids that had had a pretty rough trot. Like a lot had come out of Baltara or Tirana, you know, child correction facilities that are like kid jails. A lot had some incredible trauma or hardship that had informed the way they were. So, you know, you like... You know, I I couldn't really afford good toys and things anyway, but if you had one, it'd be stolen or broken. You know, if you ever tried to hide money, it'd be found. There were things that got you to stop being as focused on the material things because often they might go missing, but then or broke or something. But then at the same time, it was was brilliant. You were being exposed to a, a, a layer where the system wasn't quite working for these people. And so you really got to see the breaks in the system and where it went wrong. You got to see when good intentions weren't leading to good outcomes. You got to see a lot of this. And I I think as a kid, you'd still go through selfish moments going, gosh, you know, this is so hard. 
But again, it, it leads to a style of growth that I'm very, very grateful for as an adult now. Yeah. And it's one of the things I'm very aware that I, I you know, my partner, Mayo and I don't do this, but we try and find other ways to help. It's unsettling. It's difficult. It it changes the home landscape. Often home is a sanctuary, right? Hopefully a home is a safe place, safe, stable emotions. And sometimes it was no longer. It made home trickier because it would be a rapidly shifting. Sometimes some of these kids could flip to violence, could flip to other spots. And so you had to learn ways of dealing with that. But it helped nudge some of their life trajectories, some amazing success stories out of it and others where we just, you know, you'd do everything you could to help, but then you'd track sort of how they went down the track and it, it wasn't enough. Wow. It must have really spurred sort of, I mean, I can imagine like adding a layer to the conversations at the dining table as well, because, you know, there must have been lots of completely different conversations because all of a sudden you're having different actors come into the space from completely different universes. Which, which again made the dinner table more dynamic, right? It, it wasn't the same actors on the same stage night after night. It kept changing and evolving. And mum and dad really encouraged us to bring friends around and keep adding to that mix and trying different dynamics and seeing what would happen. I love it. Forget the, uh, what, what's it, the echo chamber? <laughs> it's not an echo <laughs> no. chamber. There are no walls on this chamber. <laughs> so, I mean, that obviously was a very formative part of your growing up. Can you think of another experience of your upbringing that was very formative for you? Uh, uh, yeah, many. Something that sounds a little bit inane in a way, but um, apparently I was completely attached to my mum's leg right through my youth. You couldn't separate me. I was, I was just, you know, a growth on her leg. A shadow. A shadow. <laughs> and um, it, it sounds silly, but... They saved up and got me, you know, very cheap, but it was a BMX for my sixth birth birthday. And they said they basically never saw me again other than at the dinner table sort of thing. <laughs> um, and that that BMX as a six-year-old kid, I, you know, I grew up in the city. I, I never liked being in the city. I always wanted to get out, have adventures and do crazy things. The freedom and the autonomy that one bike gave me, you know, all of a sudden I could roam neighbourhoods, I could get way further away I, I i could go on adventures and i was sort of in control of my own adventures much more i love to um, call them freedom machines yeah that's exactly <laughs> it what really was yeah it really was so what do you think was something you experienced as a child that you learned the most from but you wouldn't actually want to replicate for your own daughters andy oh um i i think one interesting thing is I think I was a fair way down the priority list. Mum and dad were both busy. They both had very active lives. So mum was involved in education. Dad ran the family business making wheels and casters. And the business was tight and hard and it demanded a lot of his time and thinking. And mum was really heavily involved, not just as a teacher, but totally changing the way education might work. She pioneered a lot of programs and did things. But they then were also involved in a lot of community groups, school councils, so many other things that they they had busy, active lives for themselves. You know, one of four kids, then often foster kids as well. 
And so I was a long way down the priority list, right? Um, it meant they didn't even know what sports I did for school. You know, they, they would never be over on the soccer ground cheering on from the sidelines. So it's interesting because I can see the benefit of that now. But as a kid, sometimes it was a bit hard when, you, when your folks don't even really have the time or capacity to properly be checking in regularly and watching and engaging. And even now, I, I can really see the benefits. So, I'm sort of, I, I think I'm, I'm not trying to change that with the way we think about raising our kids, but I'm, I'm trying to just move it a little bit more towards, you know, going to watch the occasional tennis practice or, you know, race or whatever for the kids. It's, it's being a little bit more involved, but I can also see the benefits. So, I also don't want to be there at every meet, every practice, everything. So, I, I think I would have liked just a little more <laughs> attention, but I can still see the benefits. Yeah, it sounds like you've got a, a smorgasbord of examples that you've had from your parents to, to pick and choose from. Uh, I guess if you were to pick a couple of, like, would there be an away goal and a, a toward goal that you could pick out, do you think? Yeah. Um, something I really believe in is when we try and dissipate attention when we try and fully resolve something it usually breaks a lot of things around it so you know when you go back and look at a lot of wisdoms that have transcended ages there'll be some form of how do you dance with attention rather than try and dissolve it so yin and yang is a great example right there's times of light and times of dark there's a balance between active and passive there's a balance and that balance isn't trying to find one perfect point of balance it's acknowledging that in different seasons and different stages and even different times through the day you've got to move a little bit this way and a little bit that way and so I think when I think of away goals as in what are things we want to sort of move a bit away from a and then towards goals that are more like, here's the vision, here's the motivator, here's the thing I want to move more towards. I think one of those is, I think I'd, I'd move a little bit away from, um, you know, there was a lot of independence. I, you could call it neglect, but it wasn't, right? Like it yeah. was, they were busy, they were active, they were prioritizing more than just our family. They were prioritizing community and nation and, and globe. You know, they, they, they had lifted their gaze to try and think about helping people around the world in their community, in their backyard and in their family. So I think that was brilliant. As a kid, sometimes you want to be a bit more selfish and want it to be more about yourself. But I think... In doing that, one of the things that happened was there were times when if if I was struggling to enjoy school, if I was struggling with an issue, they weren't as available. They weren't reaching out and asking and, and creating the spaces to really check in yeah. and do that often enough. They'd still do it if we went on a weekend camp trip, if something. Yeah, there'd be those moments when it could, but it maybe wasn't as frequent. So, I think... And a way goal is that I'd like to make sure with our kids that there's not as big a gaps, but before you create the space for really 
good check-ins. And to do a check-in with a kid, you can't say, is there anything you're struggling with, right? Like you've got to spend time getting them in the mood, sort of getting them used to saying some things that are moving them towards a vulnerability, get them used to introspecting. You've got to set the stage. It takes a little bit of time. And so I think not as long a gaps between those meaningful check-ins, that, that's probably an away goal. But the towards goal, like how do you then still give them enough space to go and learn to solve some problems on their own, learn to do some bite-sized things. Like I still really value that time of you can't be there to help them solve every problem right away or they never learn to solve a problem. So they've got to be two neighbourhoods over when the chain slips on the bike and can they solve it themselves rather than just rushing to parents? So it's like I, I think that that idea of still holding a yin and yang, it's like the the push and pull the active, the passive, the light, the dark. It's like, can I just move it a little bit towards the slightly more regular check-ins and the slightly more cared and designed space and check-in, but not going too far. I don't want to be a helicopter parent. It's not right for the kids. Yeah, totally. And it is. It's like, it's it's impossible to actually walk the line completely and you're not going to actually... It's not a straight line either. It's It's actually a zigzag. Exactly. Yeah. And I suppose one of the things I'd love to put your brains on, Andy, is like, is there something about parenting that you fully believe that you think the majority of parents don't? Um, I mean, even just on this same theme, right, this tension, I think there's a lot of parents trying to resolve a tension. Um, rather than teaching the kids to be comfortable with attention, to realise there will always be tensions in life. You, you never get the absolute. And so I think that's something that's probably not that common. Another thought, I did not enjoy high school, right? Like I really, I was bored. I was struggling with it. I felt it was pointless. I, I was really struggling there. And watching what's happening with a lot of high school work at the moment so much seems to be focused on that mark they get at the end of year 12 for a lot of kids right and it's like i really i don't want my kids to have six years plus university maybe if they choose that or tafe or a trade or whatever they go into where it's almost writing it off for a future goal when we think about all the rag crew we have in belroy I don't actually know what degrees people have. I've got no idea what they scored at school as a mark. I've, I, I, like, sure, if we have a general counsel, that, you know, Sarah has to have a law degree, right? Like, <laughs> that's a good one. Okay, we've yeah. got to check there. But most of what we have, I have no idea what it was because when we try and recruit, we're testing how they think. We're testing how they come at problems. We're doing all these things from scratch. And I feel like at the moment, there's a lot of parents that it's not the parents' fault. I feel like it's the whole system is saying this mark they get at the end of year 12 is so important that it's worth compromising the enjoyment, the flourishing, the exploration, the experimentation. And and I'm just watching a lot of kids not enjoy school because of the stress and the drive and all of this. Again, stress is a good thing so long as you then have recovery. And it's like push and pull. You've got to have these pulses. And I'm just watching this relentlessness of the drive to that mark at the end of year 12. And I don't think it's shaping better humans. It's definitely not shaping happier humans. I think that's another area where I, I want to leave room for failure and discovery and exploration. And, and 
with our kids, it's like we don't care what mark you get so long as you understand why you got that mark and you know what's required if you want to change that mark. And it's like if, if we can arm them to sort of not be so focused on the mark at the end of year 12, instead it's like learn how systems work, learn how to work around rules, learn which rules are good ones and which ones suck. And it's like start to build your own maps for this. I, I think that looks a bit different to how I see many others navigating high school years. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that point about chasing the end point, the destination, it totally sacrifices the process. Bellroy is very much built on constant and never-ending improvement, isn't it? It's like the 1% improvements every day, day after day after day. And that's what I don't see so much focused on in the schooling system. And it's such a shame because that's where, you know, you, you compound And if you're just constantly like pushing the box, testing what's working, what's not, you're building this map of how the world actually works, not just trying to do whatever it takes to get someone to give you a tick or a 10 or looking for external validation, then not focusing on internal validation, your inner scorecard. I I agree with that. And just to put a subtle tension back into there, even those one percenters, like, you know, one of our kids was playing violin for a lot of years. It was her choice. She wanted to do it. And I could just see she was never really practicing it much. She was never really into it. And I'm like, whatever you've invested in this already, just try something different, right? <laughs> like just try different instruments. And recently she's got this amazing friend that's right into music, a band room sort of set up in the house. And so our eldest child started to sort of just experiment on different instruments she started picked up a bass guitar started playing and like man she's hooked she's like this is so much fun there's only four strings not five so it's not as hard as a you know acoustic guitar and she's just hooked and going and so it's like there's times for the one percenters and then there's also times to throw that away and start from scratch yeah or you know try a revolution not an evolution and it's like there's also these times like whatever you've invested in so far if you're halfway up this ladder and you realize it's not a rewarding ladder for you, throw it away, climb back down and start <laughs> on a new ladder. Like, yeah. And so, again, it's that constant growth and movement. And even as you described that, like I was picturing, like we tell this story of that mark at the end of year 12. They finally get it. And it's like, great, now it's your university yeah. mark, you know, or your TAFE mark. Or now yeah. you've got to get through the apprenticeship to get your trades. Yeah. And it's this. And then they get that and it's like, Great, now you're starting at the bottom and now it's actually about, you know, are you going to run your own building business or are you going to do this? And then, and they're just like, hold on, you keep telling me it's about the goal. I get to the goal and then you keep moving the goalposts. Yeah. And it's like, what? And you're so right. If instead it's like, no, it's this constant journey. You solve a problem that lets you graduate to a new bigger media problem with more complexity or something. And it's yeah. like, it's it's the journey. Or you take those tools to a completely different challenge. But totally you, it's agree. The, it's the actual approach that you're honing. It harks back to the, is it the 80,000 hours project that says, if you're choosing a career, you want to experiment as much as possible. You want to like test everything because it's worth investing two years of your life to just play in as many different sandpits as possible because you're going to commit 40-odd years of like a career. And I think that's neglected. This whole idea that you're making a decision when you're essentially 12 or even earlier in some cases, it just blows my mind. I agree. And 
Don't even think of it as committing to a career. Think of it as building skill sets that you'll be able to keep changing and applying to new spaces. Like we think about so many of the people that would have previously gone into mechanical engineering or might have gone into supply chain or something in the 80s and 90s. Then this whole kind of computer programming thing started. Now you've got like developers and programmers. And it was like that wasn't really a thing. And then it became a thing. But many of the approaches you use in engineering are super valid over in, you know, software programming. And it's like there's now careers emerging that didn't exist before. And it's like how do you how do you just get great at understanding something interesting, moving towards it, building expertise, and then have comfort and freedom and confidence to know keep changing, yeah. right? Keep spinning, yeah. keep moving. And it's like if, you, if you're sort of three quarters of the way up that ladder but you're starting to realise you don't like the ladder – like if you've built confidence, you've, you've tried lots of new things. You have confidence that you can learn and acquire skills quickly. You can apply learning through analogous principles, whatever. Then you stop feeling like you have to commit to one thing and you can start having a life that can move and flow. There's still themes that are there. There's still values that are there, but the shape of it might change regularly. Yeah. And you, you get a much better picture of yourself as well. I love that. I think I saw something yesterday that said, when you're starting something fresh, you're not starting from the beginning. You're starting from the experiences you had before. And, so I, and it sort of makes me think of that Chris Hadfield idea of retiring. You know, he was a fighter pilot and then a test pilot and he retired, like coming into the pit stop, putting on some new wheels and off you go in a different race. I really like that. I, I think it's a really lovely visual. There, there's so much you're still bringing to it you know so much of a job is are you organized do you know how to move a project through can you approach a problem tease out the key aspects define what good outcomes look like and go for it those skills are relevant in so many more places than the first place you trained them in yeah absolutely and that sort of points back to Belroy as well because you obviously built Belroy from the ground up as a business as a force for good so what have been some of the challenges and what have been some of the upsides as using this model as business as a force for good, Andy? Oh, um, uh, first off, so many people building Bellroy and continuing to. It's such an active group, all engaging and shaping and evolving it. And I think one of the bigger challenges that still feels like it's worth it was when, when we were sort of forming how we wanted to explore business as a force for good, we said we don't want to optimise for only one thing. And so there was this notion of there's something around the growth of a business keeps creating new opportunities for crew, new learning, new challenges, new scales. But you need some profit to be able to fund that. Otherwise, you're bringing in external funders that start to take control of the wheel and you can lose control there. So there was this notion of growth, this notion of profit allowing us to keep being masters of our own destiny sort of thing as much as luck allows for. And then there was also this aspect of impact, the for-purpose side. And I think trying to have a business that was trying to hold growth, profit and impact as rather than optimizing for just one. We've just come out of a decade and a half where it was all about growth, right? It was all about growth. Like how fast are you growing? And we were looking at this going, oh, hold on. Some of these are fragile businesses, right? They're not making profit. They're, they're not helping the world. 
you can get faster growth if that's your only thing you're trying to optimize for, but it, it's not a resilient organization that can keep moving and changing. So I think one of the big challenges was that we were trying to hold growth, profit and impact. And we were acknowledging that at different stages of the business, you sort of have to shift one a little bit more ahead. Like there's times when, you know, profit's really at risk and, you know, you're starting to bleed some money. And so what happens? So you've got to bolster that down. Otherwise you won't have the resilience, but then you don't want to get stuck in that. Right. So then you're like, okay, we're actually through that stage. Now we can flick back to more impact. Like what are these projects that are really going to go beyond ourselves and, you know, shape the world a little bit towards better ways. And so I think one of the big challenges has been, can we keep all three growth, profit and impact in focus, but still acknowledge that at different seasons or stages of the business, you still have to spin it a little bit and put one a touch higher for a little while, but make sure that doesn't now become dominant forever. So then we get to rotate it back around and, and understanding how to keep those three in balance, I think has been one of the biggest challenges, but also it's given us the shape of business that can keep moving and adapting and changing as we get new minds helping shape visions and realizing new opportunities. Yeah. And I think the the thing that sort of jumps out as well is like coming from your upbringing as well, I imagine that was a, a big part of putting that layer over the way you wanted to approach business. Like what did you take from your parents' approach to business? Um. Many things. Um, it's never easy. You're signing up for like a lot of uncomfortable times or difficult times or things like that. But I think one that is maybe even more meaningful was expanding the idea of responsibility. There's many people that will feel responsible for their family above all else. But in our household, it was never just the family, right? Family was one of many priorities. Like they were trying to leave communities and countries and globe better. And so it was expanding this idea of responsibility and that to a degree you have responsibility for all the people working on these projects together and making sure that there's still opportunity for them to grow and develop. But it's needs to be more than just your immediate circle of care. Like, can you keep elevating and thinking beyond that? And can you realize that actually, like, that car's good enough and that house is good enough? And if you keep chasing a bigger and more expensive one, it's not going to bring more happiness. Like, those material things, if they're good enough, like, great, now transcend. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, now yeah. look at the next thing. And yeah. if home life is is a real struggle like have time focus on it rebuild that to a point where it's good enough that again you can expand your circle of responsibility and start to look for new opportunities to to move benefit outwards yeah i think that sort of expanded circle of responsibility is maybe one of the best lessons i love the way you say that expanded your circle of responsibility because a lot of people would term that the circle of influence and and i think it's almost like if you look at it on one hand, if you have this big circle of influence, you should actually have a commensurate circle of responsibility. And, and that seems to be something that I think a lot of people lose sight of. I, I think that's right. But I also I want to bring attention back into that. And it's that 
when you take that too far, it results in paternalistic behaviours. It starts to do these things. So I think there's also times when you're not, you know, if they're adults, they they know what they've signed up for, they're doing it, you also can't hold full responsibility. Like you have to pass some of that responsibility across to them. So I, I like that idea of, Keep thinking about growing the responsibility, well, actually, but don't let it. Yeah, maybe, maybe it should be a circle of inspiring. Yeah, to, uh, rather yeah. Than, <laughs> and, and then being inspired back. Yeah, you know, and as you as you create those better circles, know that whatever you've been able to bring to them, they should also be able to re- bring other things to you. And so it is a push pull. Sometimes you're the teacher, sometimes you're the student, and and staying open to that. But hopefully more of us start to think, well, I'm actually in a pretty good spot. Is this a time that I can now think about moving beyond my own needs, my family's needs, and start to think about caring and compassion going further? Yeah, and I love the way that you've done so much work with Bellroy as a team, I should say, and it's sort of helping other brands, but then also working with other brands and learning from other brands. There's been a lot of collaboration and that seems to have really sparked some amazing sort of almost like movements in different areas or been part of other movements. And that seems so exciting. It's not very insular. This is what we do and we're just going to grow at all costs. And I think having that ability to sort of look outward for inspiration and learnings and pull it in, pull the best bits in, but then you've been very sharing as a business. And, and sort of being willing to give away a lot of the IP and ideas to help other businesses almost like take that step further. And that's really refreshing in business, I think. Oh, it, it feels way more interesting too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's obviously working, I think. Like, um, so what, on the other hand, scares you most about, you know, what's coming down the line towards us? Oh, um. Oh, actually, no, I should back up and see how do you see the landscape changing for businesses with how they operate in the world? Yeah, uh, maybe these two things can lead into each other then. Um, I think the landscape changes faster than it ever has. You know, you look at any former technology curve and it all have some degree of exponential growth on it. Like the change is happening faster. Movements propagate faster. Technologies propagate faster. So... Business shapes that used to work in the 60s, post-World War II era, rebuilding, they could be stable, it could be a job for life, it could be a stable landscape. That's not the case now. Landscapes move and change so much faster. And so I think companies, businesses, organisations, even people have to build change muscle more deeply into the organization. You can't fix something for certainty and then stop checking if that assumption's still right. So I think there needs to be faster adaption. And then to perhaps spin on to the question just before it that comes after in a nice flow is when we think of technology, often the way we think of technology, there's sort of physical technologies. There's the amazement, improvement in processor speeds. There's the bigger machines that can do more. There's these big physical levers in the world. There's even software that works faster. Our physical technologies are progressing at such a rapid speed where the lever they have is bigger and bigger. Look at coal mining in the 18th century, 19th century versus coal mining now, and it's way bigger and it's way it just impacts things so much more quickly 
But when we think of technologies, there's also uh, like, I guess, mental technologies, right? Like how do we approach problems? How do we think through challenges? How do we develop mental technologies that are better ways of thinking and coordinating and working together? And all of these are a type of technology. And I think one thing that scares me is that many of the physical technologies are becoming bigger and bigger levers that spread faster, that do more soon. But I'm not confident yet that those mental technologies are keeping up at a pace needed. I think when we see, you know, what social media did, it, it was such a rapid adoption. It ended up almost everywhere instantly. And right now we're looking at teenagers and young adults where we hadn't properly understood the downsides and the challenges and the other things required around that technology. And so we've got to develop a whole series of coping mechanisms and mental support st like structures and psychological support structures to, to actually say, hey, there might be some good things here, but there, there will always be downsides to technologies as well. How do we develop the mental technologies at a fast enough pace to be keeping up with this? And I, I think there's many areas where the, the mental technologies maybe aren't developing as fast as they need to to keep up with the impact of these very significant more physical technologies. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's mind blowing just how exponential that stuff can, and, and that and that takes it to another level completely, doesn't it? It's you know our brains can't even comprehend exponential growth. It's so, well, it's so hard to picture. Well, on the flip side of that, what excites you most about the future, Andy? Yeah, I think um, I think that there's a lot of doom and gloom in the world, and some of it's very justified. But I, I'm also aware, like I'm incredibly cognizant right now that. A lot of our young emerging adults have almost been swamped in this nihilistic sort of view that the world's doomed, you know, we're all going to die. It's, it's hopeless. Rip away hope. But if you, if you sort of spread beyond, we can actually see, you know, COVID's been a bit of a hiccup, but child mortality continues to reduce. Healthfulness measures are continuing to increase. Education is spreading to more places. Poverty has genuinely been reduced. It doesn't feel like that. But when we look at either total numbers or percentages, there are fewer people living in abject poverty and, and kind of the, the real crunch, hard, horrible state where it's incredibly hard to get by day to day than there have ever been. And so there is still hope for our ability to bring the basics of I can put food on the table, I can get a medicine if it's needed, you know, I can get the basic survival things for the people I love and care about and myself. That has improved more over the last 100 years and even longer than we've ever really had through history. There's challenges. COVID was a hiccup. I think we'll get back on track but that's still, I still like coming back to things. Now, there's been consequences to that, right? Like one of the ways you make electricity come to a home has generally been a fossil fuel or something. So there's, there's been downsides to animals and the planet by focusing so much on the people. But people, like that's a real win, right? Now, if we can work out, okay, how do we sort of balance some of those things? And without the animals and the planet, we might start to hit other roadblocks soon we might hit other scarce environments but there's still an underlying message of hope that at least we've been able to improve the lot of millions and actually billions of lives on the planet 
Now, how can we learn to do that without as many kind of negative consequences washing out? To yeah, the unintended consequences of what was at the time an amazing thing for humanity you think back to the first coal-fired power plants it's like whoa this is rad this is going to change the world and it did but we didn't quite realize the knock-on effects okay so andy you've worked really hard and been really successful as a team how do you think about striking a balance between creating the flourishing environment that you know you want to create for your children and yet not spoiling them ah <sighs> Oh, I, I like this. And again, I'm going to come back to that theme of a yin and yang, attention. A um, I actually think, you like, for me personally, I did a bit of work to try and say, okay, if I push this to the extreme and I'm there every time my kids need me, you know, my partner Mayo is there also every time they need what are the negative consequences of that? And when you look up research, it's like, hey, these kids that can't fail, they, they've always got a safety net. They've always got something there. They can't evolve to that next stage of their development where they have to separate from the family unit a bit and start building their own autonomy and their own confidence. They have to know that when things go wrong, they can solve it on their own. They don't need to grab an adult to solve it for them. So, I think I, I really actually was actively looking for research that says, what happens if I smother my kids? And the research is pretty clear. It doesn't make resilient adults. It makes people that are scared of failure. It makes adults that will struggle to then be able to go through that next stage of their development where they're now out on their own and they're trying to build other communities and support networks and all these things. So it was like, find a yang for the yin, Right. And it's like, at the same time, what does it look like if I fully neglect the kids, right? Like, then they might go through years without the emotional support. They might struggle on things. They might have certain types of trauma, like perceived trauma that kind of really stay with them. And so it was like, develop rich sort of visceral senses for what one extreme or the other looks like. And then realize, okay, neither extreme is right we'll need a dance, we'll need a yin and yang. And then how do we know how much yin or how much yang at each stage? Because it will keep changing. And so it's also going back through things like Robert Keegan's developmental models or spiral dynamics graves, these notions of as we look at how we develop on what they call a vertical axis, which is sort of from, you know, newborn to adolescent to up through the teenage years into adults what are these stages that have to change and the emphasis has to shift and there'll still be some similar aspects to it but it, it needs to evolve kids need to go through these milestone years these you know the equivalent of the bar mitzvah or the okay we're it's acknowledging a milestone yeah. it's rites of passage it's these things so it was sort of develop a sense of extremes develop find frameworks that I believe hold merit and they have something strong and then be up for this notion that neither extreme will be right. There'll need to be a dance at different times of the dance. One gets emphasised more over the other and then it becomes this guiding North Star rather than a predetermined path, right? So you can still ebb and flow. You can still move through it. You can still adapt but have a sense of how do I make sure I never go too extreme in either direction. Yeah, I love that idea, Andy. Because I, I love the 
the visual that comes to mind when you're talking about this dance and it almost reminds me of like a metronome like the metronome doesn't stop in the middle it goes from one end to the other and and it's sort of just making sure that when you lean in you lean in and when you go the other way you know you're going to come back on track and it's just making sure that you don't go too far away from the path either Yeah, side. you don't want to break yeah. the metronome <laughs> yeah, and it sort of dangles floppily over to one way and it's broken forever. Um, and so, yeah, getting a sense of the flow, getting a sense of like reading into what developmental stages look like, what's really important in each one. Okay, what got us to this point will now need to move for the next point. Yeah. It will need to shift. It's always shifting yeah (laughs) i mean what what has parenting actually taught you about yourself andy oh um i i think one thing i i think in my younger years i i was looking for a state I was looking for almost like when I get it right, that it's this, this. It's, it's more destination, right? And, and even one step back from a pure destination is like, here is the balance that will be right for me. And then you go through parenthood and you start to understand seasonality and cycles and like ebbs and flows and you see that more. And, and just as what's right for a kid at three years old is not right for a kid at 14 years old, right? It needs to be very different. Discovering that even in myself that there will be winter times and summer times, there will be autumn times and spring times, and there will be times when I get to lean into my physical pursuits and kind of really that sort of embody body intelligence. And then there'll be times when I will trap myself in a room and just be working at the more sort of... Um, mental side and and loading that up and that I not every day every week every month every year should look the same it should move and change according to sort of shifting priorities and that I can actually be comfortable not leaving the house like you know early adulthood if I ever spent a day where I never left my house it would have broken me I was like (laughs) I'm going stir crazy where now I'm like no, I'm fine with this. I know it's not forever, but it's right for right now. And then I'll move and there'll be times when I'm outdoors a lot more. Yeah, I love that idea of like time frames because, you know, it's so easy when people talk about striking the balance, especially you think in like immediately a 24-hour cycle, but you stretch it out to a week and there's like those ebbs and flows. You stretch it out to a month or a year and all of a sudden you've got levels of ease to go, okay, that's the season for this. And I can know that it's going to change. So I can go easy on myself here because I know I'm going to hit the road running over here. And I think that's a, a much more healthy sort of perspective. It helps you be more forgiving on yourself and yes. what's happening. Yeah. And I agree. I think it it ends up with, um, I, I don't know, it feels better to me now than the old way I did it. Yeah. Less frustration, less battling it. <laughs> less inner critic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, last question, Andy. What do you think Andy, 20 years from today, would say to Andy sat here in front of me? Um, why the heck didn't you see X coming? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, I guess look at history, look at patterns, look at all these things, try and be able to get a sense of, vague forms of the future and where certain things lead us and where certain thought patterns lead us or technologies lead us but you can never you know see all the black swans right you can never predict it all um i could imagine it's like you should have seen that pattern coming (laughs) it's like we've seen this pattern play out we've seen this happen why didn't you spot that but uh, 
you be know, kind at the same time you can't. <laughs> totally be kind. Be, be kind. kind on yourself. Be kind. It's always in retrospect. It yeah, makes totally. so much sense. Oh, those dots really married up perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> Why yeah. did I not see that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's awesome, Andy. I really appreciate the time you've taken today and for sharing all your thoughts and inspiration. So what you're doing and putting out into the world with the rest of the team is, is phenomenal. So oh, just, and thanks so much, Rich, for diving deep on these themes with so many interesting folks, navigating it three different ways, you know. That, that idea of quality is fitness for purpose where there's no one absolute judge of quality, you know. A $1 big blue Ikea bag is really high quality for its intended use, for its purpose. And what you do is you reach into so many interesting folks through such diverse experience and kind of start to map some of those things out. And so, you know, we get to put our headphones on and hear really interesting folks and how they're navigating it and we get to think oh is that right for me or maybe that's not right for where I am right now but gosh I can imagine that coming up and so thank you so much for the amount of giving your and things you're putting out in the world and, and really interesting folks that you're you're sort of getting to reflect on I really appreciate that Andy thank you well thanks for listening if you enjoyed that chat with Andy and would like to find out more about him or Bellroy, I'll put links in the show notes at thedadmindset.com. While you're there, you might get asked to subscribe to receive updates. Only click this if you're feeling awesome, though. If you're not feeling too hot, simply by leaving a rating or review for the podcast will immediately qualify you as awesome in my book. It really helps others to find the show. Anyway, awesome or otherwise, I hope you have a great week and enjoy your caffeinated beverage. Mm-hmm.